Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, let's look at John chapter 12 tonight. Thanks for sharing testimonies. That's ministry too, by the way. I want to encourage you with that. Ministry is not just pulpit to pew. It's person to person. And I hope we understand the power of uh, testimony. John 12. Anybody know what this is about even before you get there? It's the first uh, eight verses. All right. Well, we are talking about conversations with Jesus in the Gospel of John. Conversations in Jesus. And the setting of this conversation with Jesus is a dinner uh, which was given in his honor. So it was given for his honor. We see that in uh, chapter 12, verse 2. And it was in Bethany. And the big news that had recently come was that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Okay, so how exciting is that? I wonder what the dinner was about. And uh, it had Jesus, um, it was on the eve of his final week of ministry. We're not told whose house the dinner was in, uh, but Martha is managing the preparations. There's a hint that maybe it's in a, a Pharisee's house named Simon, but uh, that could be another story altogether. We're not told whose house. We know Martha's managing preparations. Isn't that like Martha to be doing that? She's managing the preparations. And Lazarus is reclining at the table. How awesome is that? There's a trophy to the power of Jesus sitting right there in the midst of everyone who's there. And uh, he's with the other guests. The disciples are there. Matthew and Mark tell a similar version of the event that we're going to look at. Uh, Luke's story is different enough that we may wonder if he's really talking about a separate anointing altogether. Uh, Not sure about that. But John's version includes a conversation with our favorite disciple, Judas. That's irony, by the way. Uh, He's not our favorite disciple. We never hear a positive thing about Judas. Almost every time he's mentioned in the Gospels, it says (laughs) the disciple who betrayed Jesus Judas, the one who betrayed the Lord, and so we, we don't get that many positive statements about him. Apart from the betrayal scenes, this is the only other time we hear Judas speak. Okay, we hear him speak in the betrayal scenes. He negotiates his betrayal with the chief priests, and he offers to, to sell Jesus. They agree upon a price of 30 pieces of silver that he would betray Christ into their hands. They have a plot to kill him, and Judas, one of his disciples, one of his friends, um, agreed to betray him. Uh, He questions whether Jesus knows his intentions at the Last Supper. Do you remember Jesus is saying, somebody who's sitting here at the table with me will betray me? And, And the disciples go around, and they're honestly asking, because at this point in the ministry of Jesus, they realize that their own uh, motives can't even be trusted, you know. Uh, they, they find that out, and, and so John himself is wondering if it's him. Peter, I, am I the one that's going to betray Jesus? And, and uh, Judas asks, I think rather hypocritically, I don't know what is going on, if he's truly demon-possessed or if he's struggling with 
what he's about to do. I don't, I can't put my finger exactly on it, but he even asked Jesus, is it, is it I, am I the one that's going to betray you? And I think that it's probably an insincere question because he knows the very fact. He also greets Jesus in the garden with rabbi and he kisses him. And that's the indicator that this is the one that the the guards are supposed to arrest. He verbalizes after the arrest of Jesus his regret to the chief priest, and he gives the money back, and he goes and he takes his own life. The gospel writers, they really don't have any conversation recorded with him which is positive, and that's probably for a good reason. I imagine every time they think of Judas, negative feelings come back. Anytime we hear the name Judas, uh, that's negative. Anytime we say the word Judas, that's a negative thing right? Uh, nobody names their kid Judas, although uh, if, we are f- if we're following the Greek spelling, Judas really is, what's the Hebrew word? Judah. Did you know that? So Judas, uh, of course, we, we wouldn't want to follow that particular spelling. He's, he's mostly negative. Mary is there. She's the sister of Martha and Lazarus, And she comes into where the men were reclining at the table. Why don't we read the story and we'll take a look at some of the details here in in John 12. Look with me at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where where Lazarus lived, excuse me, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here at dinner, uh, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served. While Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him, and then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet, and she wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And so Mary comes in to where they're reclining at the table. They're not sitting in this particular setting. They're reclining. They would have been laying around the table, and uh, she... She broke open the seal of some expensive perfume and poured it on Jesus' feet. And this was an act of worship. And she wiped off the excess with her hair. And this surprised everyone, it seems, except for Jesus. He doesn't respond like the others do. It evoked a reaction. And so I wanted to uh, just talk about some of the details of this before we look at the lessons that we might learn. Here's our, our map of Jerusalem some, you can see some of the walls around it, and I'd, I'd like you to notice, maybe if you're over here, you wouldn't see this as well, but down in this corner, right here is Bethany, so you cross the Mount of Olives, the book of John tells us less than two miles from Jerusalem is where Bethany is located, that's where Lazarus, uh, that's where Lazarus lives, Lazarus, along with his sister's Mary and Martha. We don't know exactly what their situation is. It seems to me that Martha is kind of the head of the family. Is she widowed? Uh, we don't know, but probably. Uh, is Mary young and unmarried? We, we don't know. Is she also widowed? We don't know the details of that, but they, they seem to be living together there as a family, and they are followers of Jesus. And when the crisis moment comes, they know where to turn. They look to Jesus. They invite Jesus to come into that situation. Lazarus is sick. If Jesus, if you could come, then he would be all right. And Jesus, of course, delays. And four days pass. 
Lazarus dies, four days past, Jesus shows up, and Mary and Martha both come out with their version of, Lord, if you had been here, um, our brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus, of course, uh, weeps in that moment, but uh, asks for them to remove the stone, and he calls Lazarus forth, and he is raised from the dead. And all of this is happening around Bethany, and so the popularity of Jesus must be known. And there must have been quite a gathering in this house when this particular event happened. I think we can see some things about worship. If this is worship, what Mary has done, if it's worship, I think we can see some things about worship from this. And so let's take a look here. I, I do have a picture. I don't know exactly um, what this jar might have looked like. She broke open a, a flask of Purinard. This is the one that's in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. They point you to this picture. Uh, there are some versions or renditions of this with a long neck. And if it's an alabaster jar, it's made out of some kind of a stone, an alabaster stone. And so when they say it's broken, some think the neck got broken off and that released the perfume. You don't, you don't recork a bottle like this. Once it's open, it's open. Okay. And, and here's the other thing. Some people think when they broke it, what they did is they break the seal. When you break the seal, there's no closing it again, just like it was before. And so whatever value is in there, it's of, it's of a very limited use, you understand. And it's very precious and very expensive. Here's an example. This one it looks like it might be bigger because of the size on the screen, but it's only, you know, about this big. And so that would have been approximately the size of something that John talks about here. All right, so we have in here, um, if this is worship, then what we see of uh, Mary's action is she gave lovingly to Jesus. And, you know, this is the best motivation for worship that we can have. It's not just because we like the songs, right? When I was a young Christian, I used to get mad if they didn't sing the worship songs I liked. That's a stinky attitude, by the way. Don't bring that to church. Uh, that'll ruin your worship service. They're not singing the songs I like. How come they're not singing the songs I like? And I was mad about that. And uh, it ruined my worship. And the thing that I realized eventually is that what was happening was I was in it for, for me and not in it for him. If we're in it for him, the song, as long as it's biblical, and it's, it's not anti-biblical for sure, but as long as it's, it's biblical and expresses a heart for God, couldn't we worship to it? If our heart's in agreement, couldn't we worship to it? We don't like the particular arrangement. There are songs that are worshipped that we ought to worship to because we love Jesus. We love God. So they, uh, she worshipped lovingly. Why do you think she brought this uh, expensive perfume into the, that setting? Well, I know she loved Jesus. And uh, I think the motivation isn't far from where we're at. If you go back to John 11... The, the reason that she loves Jesus. Jesus was there. Jesus raised her brother from the dead. Mary is, uh, is that one contemplative type that she'll ignore all the other service requirements and say, all I want to do is I want to be where Jesus is at. Do you know, Mary did something that kind of breaks the rules of discipleship in Jesus' day. She sat at the feet of Jesus like a disciple. That was a social no-no for women in that day. 
But she did that. And not only did she do that, but Jesus said she's chosen the better thing. He starts to set the trajectory down a path that will lead to an understanding that, that, that females are on the same level in terms of discipleship as males are. There's not a second-class citizen. You're not second-class. You don't, and I want to be very careful how they say this, you don't have to have the covering of a man. You need the covering of Jesus. Come on. I've heard it said before that every woman needs the covering of a man. That is not true. If you're under Jesus, you have his covering. You understand what I mean by that? And men need that covering too, by the way. So let's be very careful about reading into the Bible things that aren't there. It does talk about coverings, yes, but that is in the relationship of uh, of husband and wife. And it could be also that Paul is addressing some things that are cultural in that as well. Well, anyway, I don't want to get too far from this thought she comes in and she offers her worship out of a loving heart. She cares about Jesus. And there's something more that's taking place here even than what we're, we're seeing. Second thing that we see about worship, I think the first thing ought to be that when we come to worship, we ought to worship Jesus lovingly. Okay, Best motive for worship, love, love Jesus, love him. If you have a heart of love for God, worship will not be far behind. Okay? Worship him lovingly. Second, worship him lavishly. This is what she does. She worships lavishly. She gives lavishly. When you see what what is going on here and the assessment that takes place, I'd like us to read on down here in chapter 12, verse 4. Uh, It says, one of the disciples, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold for the money and given to the poor? Sold and the money given to the poor. It's worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor. John likes to show us what's going on a little bit behind the scenes. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Lovely picture of Judas, right? She lavished this upon Jesus. Uh, It seems that not only did she anoint his feet, but if you look at the other Gospels, uh, by the way, if you're taking notes tonight, I want to give you a little bit of relief. At the end, I'm going to put a QR code up with all of my notes, and it's going to have a chart with comparison between all the Gospels and this story. So you can see all the different parts. But if you look at one of the Gospels, it says she anointed his his head and his feet. So... Uh, one thing I, w- I want to point out here is that if you see varying details, uh, just because you see something missing in one version doesn't mean it didn't happen. Are you, are you with me on that? Just because it only says feet here doesn't mean she didn't anoint his head. It's just that John saw some particular point that needed to be made. And uh, lavishly is part of this is that she she poured on abundance. And I think one of the reasons that it says that she used her hair to wipe the perfume off, like why would you be wiping the perfume on? Because it's she poured it out in such excess. Okay. I'd like you to think about the value of it. A year's wages. Okay, what are what's one Jewish custom that happens every week? Tithing? Well that's a good one. But that's not what I'm thinking. Shabbat, Sabbath, 
right, every week. What, what happens on the Sabbath in terms of labor? None, right? So if you have a day laborer and they work uh, for their wages every day, which is what a lot of people did, then you, you collect money on the day that you work, right? How many days a week is that? Six. How many, how many days a year would that be? A lot, okay? A lot, okay? So uh, let's just say there's 52 days every year you know, right? 52 weeks a year. Am I right on that? Is my math right? They didn't require us to take math at Bible college, so help me here. 52 days, how many, how many days in a year? 365 in the Jewish calendar is 360, right? They make up for it every once in a while. How about having an extra month? Um, but there's 360 in the Jewish calendar, and you take out all the Sabbaths and take out the holy days, you got about 300 years of workable, or 300 days of, uh, during the year that are workable. And so the way that this says in the NIV is that it's a year's wages, but most of the very formal translations say it's worth 300 denarii, okay, or 300 shekels. You can see the different translations on the notes if you want to download that. But what it's saying is that it's worth about a year's wages. Let me ask you, if you think about what your annual salary is, would that crush you to have to give that to Jesus? Think about it. That's what this woman did. She gave what was a year's salary in one moment to Jesus. This was a beautiful gift. And not only that, but a lot of the Bible scholars think this could have been a family heirloom and possibly even her dowry. I don't know if you know anything about dowries, but in the ancient world, you don't really get married without offering a dowry. That was like a, an insurance policy that the husband could take care of you. Okay, So think about that. There's a possibility that this could mean Mary is giving away a future marriage in this one moment of worship to Jesus. That's lavish. You understand? It's not foolish what she's doing. Jesus didn't say, boy, it's foolish what you're doing. Let's think about this a little bit. Surely we need to be wise. But what he does is he commends her for what she does. It's a lavish gift to pour that out on Jesus' feet. And it says the aroma filled the room. Everybody knew that something was taking place here. Here's the third one. I think that when we worship, we ought to worship lavishly. And that doesn't always mean that it has to be big offering gifts. I'm not even talking about that. I think lavish, what God really wants, He wants our heart, right? He wants all of our heart. If He has all of our heart, that at any moment He could ask us for anything that He needs that's part of our life. But if He doesn't have our heart, we're always going to be grudging anything that He asks us for. But what he wants is for us to give all of our heart to him. And then the rest of our life follows. Uh, I think it was uh, Chuck Swindoll that talked about how when you come to Jesus, he requires everything. And then he usually gives most of it back for us to steward. Right? Isn't that true? That if you become a Christian, you still have your family. You don't have to necessarily wave goodbye to them. But you need to be a good steward of that. And your finances, he doesn't require you to... Always, every person to give up their finances, he gives that back to you to steward it. But we have a different take on it. It's all his. Our heart, our life, our decisions, our plans, our goals, it's 
all his. Now we're just stewards of it because it belongs to him, but we sit as the steward over those things. How are we going to respond when he comes calling? Have we given ourselves lavishly in worship? It may not be that we're super demonstrative, like dancing. You may want to dance. If you want to dance, that's great. But it may be that standing silently or or even uh, singing quietly may be as much an expression worship as somebody who's dancing. I'm not, I'm not uh, biased on the particulars. What I want is for every heart to be given fully to God. That's lavish love. To say, Lord, you have all of my life. You can say it loud, you can say it quiet, but if it's true, that's the lavish worship that the Christ wants. Okay, the next one is she, she worshiped unblushingly. I don't know if you thought about this, but the feet are kind of nasty. It's okay if you want to smirk a little bit. We're serious, but we can also <laughs> also laugh about it. Come on, is that not true? And and we, for the most part, keep our feet covered because we live in Alaska where it's cold. And we don't want to freeze those little piglets off. So we keep them covered up most of the time. But can you imagine walking dirty streets where there's fungus? I, I know this is gross to think about. And dirt and mud. And the shoes are open-toed. And it's all the time. And when you went to somebody's house, the expectation was they would wash your feet. They would take care of your feet because you don't want somebody tromping around with their nasty feet in your house. Okay? So in the Luke version of this, if this is the same story in Luke, um, she comes in and she she washes Jesus' feet with her tears and wipes them off. And, of course, Simon says... If he only knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't let that happen. And Jesus, knowing his thoughts, says, Simon, I came into your house. You didn't wash my feet. And she's washed them. She has not stopped washing my feet with her tears. So there's there's an unblushing kind of love here. It's not afraid to do the embarrassing thing. I can guarantee you that when Mary went into this setting, that it was shocking Okay. There's a lot of things that are related to this. One thing is that, uh, especially married women, but women, it was not common for them to uncover their hair in public. Did you know that? Still in the Middle East, that's still true in a lot of places because it was considered improper. That was something for the husband's gaze. Okay, And so for her to let down her hair and wash and dry Jesus' feet, was scandalous. If it makes us uncomfortable in our permissive age, I can guarantee you this was near shocking in that setting. How did Jesus see it? Like, oh, she's so perverted and dirty. No. She did this unblushingly. And you know what she didn't do? She didn't look around to see what everybody else was thinking about it. She didn't. She wasn't worried about what other people... I think this is something that needs to happen in our day. Let's, let's worship with all of our heart, and let's not care what people think about us. The president of our Bible college, uh, Dr. Lednicki, used to say that you'll either worship God or you'll be critical of people who do. And he liked to preach about how Michael, when she saw David coming in Jerusalem with the ark, would, was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And, of course, 
He's carefree. He's not thinking about what anybody's thinking about. He's, his outer cloak has been thrown off, and he's dancing in what would be a 1910 version of underwear. Remember how they used to wear those swimsuits back then that were down to your ankles and up to your wrists? Uh, he was dancing around like that. Michael was looking down. Michael is Saul's daughter, his wife. How could you do that? You're the king. Do you not realize you're the king? And David said, yes, I do know that I'm the king, and God made me king instead of your father. Then he said, uh, you think I'm undignified? I'll become even more undignified than this. Even more. I love that, don't you? That dignity was not, dignity and worship. I don't mean that we should do things, we shouldn't do things decently. You understand what I mean by that? There, there's things that are proper in worship and things that are improper. But thinking about our own personal dignity is not, is not high on the priority list in worship. So David danced around here. Uh, Mary, she's not looking around to see what Martha thinks, Lazarus thinks, what the disciples think, what whoever this Pharisee is, what he thinks. She's worshiping Jesus. She's offering her gift. And so I think it's valuable for us to worship together, but I think it's a distraction when we're looking around, wondering what other people are doing. You know what will create a worship environment in a church like this? Is if we forget about what other people are doing and we say, no matter what they do, I will worship. Because when you do that, somebody else goes, who's a little more timid than you are, will go, they're worshiping. They haven't quite caught on to this unblushing thing yet. They're looking for cues. Your kids, they're looking for cues. And so if they see you worshiping unblushingly, they're going to catch on to that. And we'll become a worshipful church. I think we already are. But I think even more so. Because we're not worried about what other people think. We're, we're playing to the audience of one, to Jesus, you know. So it didn't matter that it was feet. It didn't matter that it was an extravagant gift. Some people would have said, this is such an extravagant gift. I need to give this privately so that nobody can see and think that I'm trying to be Mr. Big Shot. Okay. Um, sometimes we think humility is uh, self-effacing. And I think there is a part of humility that's like that. You know, where you, you make yourself smaller. But do you know what true humility is? True humility is self-forgetfulness. You're not even thinking about what other people are thinking. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like one version of humility is, I can't do this where other people would see. The other version of humility is, are there even any, is there anybody else around? All I see is Jesus. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks of me. If they get my motives right or wrong, all I know is this is being done from a genuine heart. That's true. I think true humility is not making ourselves so small. True humility is self-forgetfulness. Forget about yourself. Because, you know, one thing that can happen is we can think about ourselves too much on the humility side. Oh, how's this going to look? Forget about that. Worship Jesus. That's what she did. She did it unblushingly. And I think it was powerful. I thought it would be interesting today to go through and uh, we'll see if we can do this. My, I've got a new system here. But the contrast in character between these two, this is all on the notes if you're interested in 
uh, downloading those, but I thought we'd take a moment to contrast character. Um, what it says about Judas here in verse, verse uh, 6, uh, when the question came up, Judas brings up this smokescreen. You could have sold this and given it to the poor. Do you know what he really wanted to have happen? He wanted them to sell that and put the money in the bags. Why? So he could get his grubby paws on it. And uh, Jesus sees right through that. says he was the keeper of the money bag, and he used to help himself to what was put into it. And it talks about how um, he didn't say that, um, let's see. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold? He didn't care about the poor, but because he was a thief. Uh, I thought you might like to know that the Greek word that's there, the root of that is klepto. And if you want to be real literal, Judas was a klepto. That's the Greek. He was a klepto. And uh, it shows uh, the problem. He was a taker. I'm going to put here, I think I will. Let's see if we can get this right here. Nope. All right. I'm just going to leave this up here. He was a taker. A taker on a small scale. Judas was, what was the directional flow of his life? It was towards self. Okay. What was Mary? She was a giver. And not a giver on the small scale, a giver on the grand scale. Right? She gave away something that was worth a year's wages. Judas was a pilferer, a little here, a little there, taking towards his life. I'd like you to think about Mary in terms of who they took from. He, uh, Judas takes from Jesus, and Mary gives to Jesus. Okay, And just so we can be clear on this, um, I, think it's, I think it's ridiculous when people steal from churches, don't you? Like extra ridiculous. I, I know we have that thing about stealing from anybody's wrong, but you th- you think about the audacity that it takes to say, I'm taking from God, stealing from God. Okay. Um, I think Judas here, he's taking from Jesus. I'm going to just call that irreverence. He's irreverent. Mary, on the other hand, is reverent. Think about motives here. Uh, Judas masked his motives behind the appearance of good, right? What did he say? He said, we shouldn't let her do this. We should sell this so that we can have to give to the poor, right? Do you see what he's doing? He's putting up a smoke screen to mask his true motives. What are his true motives? He wants to get, he wants to get that money for himself, okay? But I'd like you to notice on the flip side of this, that Mary was proved genuine despite appearances of impropriety, okay? What she did looked like it wasn't right to some people, okay? If you think uh, Luke is this same story, then you're going to see Simon say there, uh, how could you let a woman like this do that? You're an unmarried rabbi. She's an unmarried woman, and apparently her past is a little bit checkered. That Something about that doesn't look right and it doesn't feel right. And even as I read this story, I have to, feel, I have to tell you that it feels a, a little bit at the moment like it's irksome. Like there's something that just doesn't seem right about that. 
But that's on the surface. Do you understand what I mean? It's on the surface here. And yet, Jesus shows that the true motive was genuine. Do you see the contrast there? Judas, who it looks like on the outside what he really wants is good, really was had a bad motivation. Mary, who's doing something that looks on the outside like it's bad, uh, is really doing something really good in worshiping Jesus. And so we see that one has pure motives and the other does not. I'd like you to contrast with me um, Judas and Mary in, in terms of what they did here. Mary worshiped Jesus and Judas criticized. Mary worshiped Jesus, Judas criticized others. Can I, can I challenge us with something related to this? I think there's a principle in this when we, we worship, is that let's not look around like Michael did, looking down at David, and be critical of other people as they're worshiping. I don't get the sense that we're like that here, but there are some times where people are like that. They're critical of other people. Like, can you see how they're acting? They're getting lost in emotion. They're all wrapped up in emotionalism. Well, you can't always know that. Okay? Or somebody, here's the way that I've seen it a lot because, you know, we grew up in Pentecost and we feel like the apex of worship is that you've got to be dancing and shouting and jumping up and down. And if you're not, you're not really worshiping. I want to challenge you not to be critical. You don't know what God's doing in their heart. They may be standing there rather quiet. But God is doing a big work in their heart, and they're offering their all to Jesus. You can't judge by those things. What are our eyes doing on them anyway? Let's not be critical of others. Let's look to Jesus and worship him. Okay. So you can see a contrast between these two. One's a giver, one's a taker. One is marked by true motives, the other is by false motives. One criticizes, the other worships. So there's a contrast between Mary, and this doesn't matter as much in our day, it shouldn't, but I'm sure it did in their day. If we really knew the culture, this is a big deal that Judas is a man and Mary is a woman. She's the true worshiper, not the man who is the disciple. And so that's a, a real challenge. Be a true worshiper, man or woman. We need to love God. Mark makes it clear uh, in his uh, gospel that this was the deciding moment. This is the episode um, where Jesus' sharp rebuke prompts Judas to betray him. If you look here at Mark chapter 14, verse 10 and following, then this is following Mark's version of this same story. We're in John, I know, and so we won't go into all the details, but... After Mark's version of this, it says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray them, uh, to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear and promised to give him money. And so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Jesus rebukes Judas, and Judas is done. I don't know if this is like the, the one time that he got the singular rebuke and it got embarrassed in front of people. And so now he's on Jesus's, Jesus on his bad list or what? Or if maybe this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. I tend to think that Judas has not only a, a problem with a greed, but I also think he doesn't think Jesus is going about this revolutionary thing right. And so he wants to force his hand. So there's some things that are going on here that have a lot of innuendo to them. 
But whatever it is, this is the deciding moment in Mark's gospel where Judas begins to go down that road of betrayal. Okay? And maybe already some things have taken place that would lead us to that. John doesn't make that connection here, but he shows that at the time of the Last Supper, which we would come up on in the next couple chapters, um, that Judas's betrayal was already in motion. How does Jesus see this gift? How does he respond to it? First of all, I want to point out here that Jesus sees the motives of this. He sees the motives. He sees the motives of Judas. He sees the motives of Mary, and he has a different take on it than a lot of people. So she offers her gift, and Judas makes the comment, why wasn't this perfume sold and money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief as keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You always have the poor among you but you not always have me. He sees the motives. He sees what's going on in her heart, that this is, this is true and genuine worship. This is, this is love. This is lavish. He sees all of that, and he sees past the hang-ups that some people are having on this. And, you know, uh, it's kind of an interesting thing because we have, to, we have to make this application carefully because it's tricky. Because you know that Jesus says you always have the poor with you. Some people could use that as an excuse for not doing their part. And that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying we, that Mary happens to be in that unique moment in history where the visual presence of Jesus and the presence of Jesus in the needs of others are both an option. Okay, So while he's there, he's the one that she should be offering that gift to. It's like, Lord, why don't your disciples fast? Well, the bridegroom's here. The bridegroom's here. You don't fast when the bridegroom's here. You celebrate. When the bridegroom's gone, it's time to fast. Okay? So I think that's the case because, you know, the Bible talks about how as you've done to the least of these, you've done it to me. That's worship too. Okay? But we have to understand this is a particular setting in which the appropriate thing at that appropriate moment was to give directly to Jesus. You know, some people, the religious leaders in particular, uh, used to play tricks like this, and they used to say instead of giving a particular part of their offering, they would say, they would say that's dedicated. That's dedicated. I can't help my parents with that even though they're in need because that's dedicated unto the Lord. And they were using that as a smokescreen of religiosity, and I think a lot of times... Uh, a way to keep money back for themselves. And maybe even they were genuine, some of them, in it, but Jesus came to correct that and say, no, taking care of your parents is part of your spiritual responsibility. That's worship. Taking care of the poor, that's worship. Now, uh, we have to understand that there are people who are poor and there are people who are poor. You, you know what I'm saying? That there's a difference, and we, have to be, we also have to be wise in that. You understand what I mean? I don't want to go too far into that and get political, but uh, we have to be careful in our understanding with that. But Jesus himself says, as you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. We don't have the physical presence of Jesus with us like, uh, like they did. We have the Holy Spirit. 
this kind of act is often done proxy through ministering to others whom Jesus loves. Uh, but when Jesus was on earth, he could receive those tangible acts of worship, like the breaking of the jar, the pouring of the oil. He's not diminishing the poor. He was talking about the priority of the moment. He expected his disciples to care for the truly destitute. And that need will always be there. And this goes back to Deuteronomy 15, the opportunity that they had before them to to anoint Jesus for his burial. That was a momentary thing that wouldn't remain. Mary, I think, seems to attract criticism, don't you? She attracts criticism. But uh, one thing we see, not only does Jesus see the motives, but he also defends true worship. I love this. He tells them, stop bothering her. What are the, leave her alone in this uh, gospel. The other gospels, there's some variation of this, but he defends the true worshiper. He will, he will vindicate the true worshiper, those who worship truly, even if it doesn't look exactly right to the critic. He vindicates them. He defends them. He says, no, that's a true worshiper. It might not look like it, but I know the heart of things. And so he defends her worship. And not only uh, that, that's in verse 8. You can see, leave her alone. Uh, you'll always have the poor among you, but you'll not always have me. And he says, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. And so you, you realize that if she broke the jar open, she poured some of it out. She may have poured all of it out, but there's a possibility she poured some of it out. The rest of it could remain for the week's time where it would be poured on Jesus' body and used. The interesting thing here, by the way, is why wasn't this perfume used at the burial of Lazarus? You ever thought about that? Like Lazarus died, and it's typical to anoint bodies with perfume. Why didn't they use that? This was intended to be saved. Intended by who? Intended by Mary? Intended by the providence of God? I don't, I don't know exactly. There's some different options with that. But Jesus talks as if somehow Mary is worshiping better even than she knows. He defends true worship. But Mary is always kind of attracting criticism. If it's not Judas, it's Simon in Luke 7. And if it's not Simon, it's Martha in Luke 10. Somebody's critical of Mary, but Mary's actions were defended by the Lord. As I said, uh, her actions made people uncomfortable. Judas and Simon uh, both felt a little uncomfortable by what she did. She poured out the, uh, the perfume on his feet. This story shows us that there are things others may be critical of which God considers true worship. And uh, not only that, that there was a time when having um, that worship showed uh, that a person really, really loved the Lord. Third thing here is that Jesus honors true worship. It doesn't say this here. Uh, verses 7 and 8 kind of hint at it. But Jesus honors the true worshiper. We see it in Matthew and in Mark. I'll show you the verse here. Mark fourteen nine. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. You get, the, you get honor from worshiping God. 
Think about this. I don't, I don't know if you thought about this, but she wipes the perfume from Jesus' feet. Okay. Jesus is going to smell like that perfume. I think probably the whole week. I don't know about you. I like to smoke uh, different meats. And when, uh, when I do that, you smell like it. You smell like it for a long time. The clothes will smell like it for days and days. This perfume, I imagine, attaches even more than that. But here's the other thing. Mary smelled like Jesus. Isn't that interesting? I think about that because she worshipped, they shared a fragrance. You understand? There was the, the Paul would call it the, uh, the aroma, the aroma of life in 2 Corinthians, right? We spread everywhere the fragrance of him. That's, that's what Mary's doing everywhere she goes. You smell like Jesus. Worshippers, true worshipers are honored by that, the smell of Jesus. I think it's a beautiful thing. And so tonight I want to I challenge us, let's be Mary-type worshipers, not Judas-type disciples, looking to the wrong kinds of things, living with the wrong kind of motives, uh, truly people who want to see him honored and are willing to give our best. We want to love God. Uh, we want to worship him lovingly, lavishly, and uh, unblushingly. And so I challenge us with those thoughts tonight. Do we have any thoughts or questions before we uh, say our word of closing prayer? No? Yeah, Jen. They do have an extra month every once in a while, and it escapes me. Somebody here may know that. Anybody? I can look it up. I'll come back with that answer. Every once in a while, they make up for the... They're on a lunar calendar rather than a solar calendar. And so because of that, um, the days don't aren't exactly alike. And so um, they go on a 360-day year. And after so many, they have to make that up with a month. Yeah. I'll come back with more details on that. I just I didn't intend to mention it, or I would have been prepped with some more answers on that. But uh, somebody could probably Google it and find that out. But yeah. anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the same story, but um, there there have been one of the early guys, and I'm trying to think of his name now, thought that there were, I don't know if his origin, maybe his origin, thought that there was three anointings. I don't, I don't know about that. Um, I think the gospel writers had different emphasis, and Luke had uh, relied on eyewitnesses, and so they may have some details a little bit different. Uh, that doesn't change the point. Uh, you'll see in the notes, if you want them, you can, if you don't know how to do this, uh, the easy way is just to open your camera on your phone, point it in this direction, a little link should pop up, and you'll have my Evernote. It'll look something like this, except white paper with black text. Um, yep. 
I was, it's going to say in there that uh, the point is that they use different details. Anybody ever listen to somebody tell a story and they don't leave out any detail even though it's irrelevant? Okay. And you get lost. You're like, what's the point of the story? Okay. When the gospel writers are telling their story, they're telling them with a point. And so sometimes they include one detail because they're giving a different emphasis, and sometimes they include another. Think the details are accurate. Like uh, in one of the gospels, it talks about two blind men on the road, and one gospel mentions just one. Well, were there one or two? There's two, but only one was mentioned in one gospel because it served the point. So you don't have to tell every detail in every story. You need to tell what's relevant to the point you're trying to make. And it doesn't mean that they're not uh, in any way fudging the truth. That's not the problem. The problem is is that uh, there's only so much space, and they're under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So um, I, does that answer the question? Okay. Yeah, John. I can't say, but I think probably it was a growing discontent with the way things were. I think the more you're around Jesus, I think he's a catalyst that causes us to crystallize into either a follower of God or someone who will be against him. The more you're around him, you're prone to one or the other. Um, Nobody ever stayed neutral when they came into the situation with Jesus. I think as time went on, they got to know him more. The more he taught I think probably Judas realized, I'm not making a true commitment. His priorities were different, and he went a different way. Mm-hmm. I think that. I think that's the bigger motive, but... Yeah. Yeah, some people think his name is um, part of a, a Greek word, Sakari, and so he was. Uh, Sakari were the knifemen uh, that used to fight against the Romans. They would go up next to a Roman and stab them through the cloak. And so they were kind of brutal people. And if Is- Iscariot is derived from Sakari, then Judas might have been kind of a henchman before. And so he might not have had a lot of problem with that. And that's what suggests that he was a Jewish revolutionary, that he really wanted to get the Romans out. And so he would follow a Messiah type thinking that Jesus is going to, if he can raise the dead, if he can feed an army like he fed the 5,000, if he can lead people in such a charismatic fashion, he's the answer to get the Romans out. And then we can see the true glory of Israel return. And if that's the case, he might be motivated by that. Um, I had a professor in Bible college who was an intertestamental guy, and uh, he he knew all of this stuff, and he thought that Judas was Sakari. Um, so, and he dealt with a lot of the like Josephus and uh, Midrash and all of the Jewish writings. So, yeah, John. what you must do, go and do quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I do think at some point he was either possessed by Satan himself or by a demon, Uh, but I think the things leading up to that were already beginning to happen. You don't just just get demon-possessed. All of a sudden, I think there's a, a slide of the soul that opens up more and more to demonic suggestions. That's my take anyway. So...
Okay, two more questions, then we got to go. So, yeah, Sandy. Yeah, but um, remember, we're not dealing with a, a media culture where they have TV or um, newspapers or anything where there's photographs. So it relies upon, and uh, probably for the sake of uh, transfer of custody, it relies upon some kind of a personal identification. This is the person. And so I think that's probably the reason. Some people would have known who he was, but others, they only knew of him by the story, not by the face. Did you have a He did. About my thoughts of that boy. We enter in the Calvinist Arminian debate. Yeah, I think um, you could argue for foreknowledge that God knows ahead of time, but that Judas is still responsible for his personal decisions. That's the best I can do in the short time we have. So, there is prophecy about that. Yeah. yeah. God, and God knows. Well, you know, probably there in the Psalms, I imagine Isaiah had something to say. God knows ahead of time what's going to take place. And so, whether he um, preordained it or whether out of his foreknowledge he, the circumstances happened and Jesus chose the right one, uh, I don't see that as him determining the will of a person, but others view that differently. So, all right. Hey, we're way past time, and I know tomorrow is the first day of school, so we want to go ahead and stand and have a word of prayer. Um, I hope you'll get these. If you don't get these, you have a problem, uh, and you want them, let me know, and we'll make sure you get that. Father, thank you tonight for your word, and we want to be the kind of uh, Christian that Mary exemplifies in this uh, chapter. We pray, Lord, that you help us to purify our motives, to come at you uh, with worship that is loving, lavish, and unblushing. And we pray that you'll help us to start today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.